the Blood Covenant. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 3. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Again, Lord, we ask you to grant us a rich measure of your spirit of wisdom Amen. and a revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Now, Father, help us as we look into your covenant. Help me to faithfully amplify these truths in such a way that people receive understanding and that in Jesus' name they might go away from here rejoicing because they begin to see the truths of this incredible, incredible act of faith of yours in us. So help us, Father, as we look into this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, we're, we're referring to blood covenant uh, because the Bible is actually, remember, as I said, just a short little refresher. The Bible is a record of covenants. And covenant... And the Hebrew word for it is berith. It means to cut where blood flows. It always means to make a cut where blood flows. Again, I, I cannot, uh, you know, I, I, as I've, you've heard me share, I don't want to. I don't want to go off into a bunch of just uh, pontification here, but I don't know if there's any other truth that's more important for the body of Christ to begin to understand than, than the covenant that God's made. What a blood covenant is. What I said last week was that. A lot of the other areas of understanding in this Christian experience of ours that we search after, like how to live by faith, uh, understanding healing, you know, we're teaching on healing on Saturdays, or, or whatever else there is. If we actually ever grasp the truth of what this covenant understanding is, and faith, all these other things are simply, it's a natural byproduct of an understanding of the depth and the length and the breadth and the height of what God's devotion to his people is. And understanding the covenant. Like I said, I'm, I'm going to speak, for, uh, uh, like I said, a lot from this book that we talked about last week. Like I said, this is the classic, like I said, of, of in literature written around 1885 by H. Clay Trumbull. Uh, but we, we started last week, like I said, we've taught two hours, and we're still on the first page down here, and we're on down towards the bottom of the page. But let me just start on point three, where it says, covenant is what allows us to get in touch with God. And let me just kind of start from there, and then I'm going to read a few pages here from, the, from Trumbull's book again. Uh, I spoke about the difference between theology and, and covenant. Theology is the study of God, like I said, anyology, geology, archaeology, uh, you name them. Ology is, a, is, a, is simply a suffix that speaks to the study of something. So theology in its purest form, if you really think about it, is the study of God. Just like anthropology is the study of man, whatever. It's the study of. Whereas covenant isn't the study of, it's literally, like it says here, communion with. It speaks of a relationship, not a study. And as we said last week again, you can study washing machines <laughs> until you know every aspect of how they're put together, how they function. You can study an automobile. You can study what an engine looks like. You can study how to fix an engine. Uh, but you'll never have a relationship with that washing machine, nor really with that engine. And we can study God our whole life and not fellowship with Him. We can, in other words, 
universities, the, uh, seminaries are full of people who will study about God to see historically how this God of the Judeo-Christian ethic interacted with his people. And they'll study about this and they'll study about that. But so often, again, that leaves us very short of really coming to what God wants for us today, which is to really know what it means to commune with him in strong friendship. A strong friendship is one of the phrases that's always tied to the word covenant. When you speak of covenant, you're talking about something that says not just friendship, not just loyalty, but strong, strong, stronger than anything that you can imagine. Now, like I said, I've got to repeat a little bit of it. In this book, when you read, like I said, the first 250, 200 and some pages, it's just a historical account that these gentlemen did when they, uh, because of some lectures that they were asked to do and how they began to study how covenants of blood were cut through again through every single race as far back as human history has been recorded. Every single race known to man has within its history a revelation of the, of the importance, the deepest importance of what it meant to enter into a league or a, a contract or a covenant with another tribe or another people through the shedding of blood. And they did it in all kinds of ways that were not biblical ways. I mean, they, you know, they perverted it by drinking it and all kinds of things. But the point is, even before biblical history, in other words, before you could trace it back, by that I mean before the Abrahamic covenant, you, you can find records of, again, all manner of people's understanding the, the importance of just what happens. I mean, the, the holiness is the only word I can come up with of what it meant to come together in a covenant that has to do with blood. They considered, again, that the intermingling of blood was the intermingling of natures, that actually you were becoming one with someone else. And this is what we're trying to communicate in these first few days of teaching this. But I, I, I want to read now again and just let you, I'm going to just read from the book here. And like I said, you've got to bear with me. I'm really going through another opportunity for frustration because I'm studying this afresh right now. And I'm going to teach about 15 hours of this up in the north in the first of the year. And the Lord showed me so many other things that I want to be able to teach in it because uh, it's about the sacrificial systems and, and how all of these things point to, uh, well, I shouldn't even open my mouth, my mouth. In the New Testament, all the whole New Testament is covenant language. When Jesus is talking about being one with each other, when he's talking about living stones, all these verses that we just read and we don't really, we just read them and they, they're nice stones. Hey, we're all, our nice scriptures, we're all living stones being built up into a living house of God. And we don't understand that even that is covenant language. They used to take seven to 21 stones and they'd take blood and they'd pour blood on these stones. And every stone was called a Bethel. And a Bethel meant a little house of God. Every stone was called a little house of God. And then they would take those stones and make a memoriam after two tribes or two peoples came together. We're living stones, <laughs> blood covered. I mean, just every bit of the New Testament is covenant language that I, I'd venture to say 98% of the body of Christ has no idea what they're reading, that they don't understand that all of this is covenant language. This is why I'll read it, hopefully, in the second hour, in this hour. But when you get to that passage in Ephesians where Paul said to be a stranger to the covenant is to be as good as without God and without hope in this world. And while, of course, he's speaking in context of being outside the covenant of Israel, it's also speaking to this issue. It's, it's clearly in the Greek. It says to be a stranger to covenant understanding is as good as being without God. 
because of the way God functions and the way God speaks. When the language that God speaks is covenant. And so again, we're doing our best with the Western mindset to try to figure out an Eastern understanding, an Asian, an Oriental mindset that goes back forever. The Bible in the Old Testament doesn't speak in several places to how some of the covenants were cut because in all the books that you read about covenant, they say it was so massively already understood by the peoples of that age what these things meant when they talked about a cut or when they talked about a stone or when they talked about a planting of a tree or when they talked about a putting together of a... Uh, uh, of a fence or, or what it meant to be a friend to sit at a table and have a meal. They, it was just understood throughout all creation that these were deeply holy covenant things that marked your life forever. And again today, we, we just have been taken away, like you'll see earlier on the page when we taught last week, that what happens over time is that people have been civilized away from covenant understanding to the point that now we just, we laugh about contracts, we laugh, laugh about commitments, and we say, again, like we said last week, ah, contracts are just something, they're made to be broken, and we laugh about it. We don't understand all the things that we do, the handshakes, everything that we do, the lifting of the hands, were all covenant symbolic situations where you were showing the cuts and the, and the marks in your hands, and when you clapped, all, every, all of these things that we do on Sunday mornings in our churches actually have covenant symbolism. And they mean something so much more than just raise your hands. <laughs> because it meant, it meant an absolute redeclaration <coughs> of the fact that you were in covenant with someone, somewhere. Anyhow. But I'm just going to read, like I said, and remember the language of this book is from 1885, so it reads a little... Slow, but I just I'm going to read about two or three pages just to get us back in the in the swing of things here before we get back to the actual how covenants were cut and uh, the covenants in the Bible and so on here. So this is from H. Clay Trumbull's book again. If you if you had a book, it's from page two hundred two uh, where it says blood covenant involving. So now just just try, just bear with me. Just listen if you can. And now that we have before us this extended array of related facts concerning the sacred uses and the popular estimates of blood in all the ages, it will be well for us to consider what we have learned in the line of blood rites and of blood customs and in the direction of the religious involvings, especially as it is important for us to see where and how all this bears on the primitive and the still extant ceremony of covenanting by blood with which we started in this investigation. Now, like I said, because he was doing these things as like a, 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 for a huge, like conferences that were of masses of theologians who had never, ever, ever looked into the issue of covenants. From the beginning and everywhere, from the beginning and everywhere, blood seems to have been looked upon as preeminently the representative of life. As indeed in a particular or in a peculiar sense, life itself. Blood was looked upon as life itself. Now I'm going to throw this in here real quick. Many of you have heard me share this when I teach in other things about sacrifice. The whole thing that I'm spending all my time studying right now is the sacrificial system again because of what it's it's blowing my mind, the stuff that the Lord's given me, showing me these things. But the point is, nowhere did sacrifice ever mean death in the Bible. Nowhere did sacrifice ever was it was it ever meant to point to death in any culture even outside of the Bible 
because sacrifice was simply the way that you got to blood. So in the, all, in the mindset of all humanity, until we got thickened ourselves into today's kind of thinking, when we think of sacrifice, we think of death or something we're giving up. But the mindset of all other people was, no, we're getting life. The way you get to life is through sacrifice because sacrifice is what gets you to blood. And when you get to blood, you're getting to the very life of something, again, that they felt so holy about. They knew that life had within itself the nature of whatever the being was. And this is why you'll read tons of stories and you'll hear about them. You've seen films about how the American Indians and African natives are in the, in the melee and in Timor, I mean, Borneo, Burma, everywhere, everywhere when they would you know, kill an enemy, and if an enemy had fought incredibly valiantly and courageously, they, it was a huge honor to, to cut that person's chest open and to take that heart out and to eat that heart because they wanted to imbibe the life and they wanted to imbibe the courage. They felt, I mean, every race felt that to get that life was to get the nature of the person, even if it was somebody that they had defeated. But if somebody had gone down in honor, they esteemed it so highly that they wanted that blood somehow, and they would just somehow find a way to capture that blood because this was in the heart of mankind throughout every, every culture, like I said. And as I said in the first few sessions, the similarities in all the cultures throughout the lands are so phenomenally close that it's impossible for them not to come any other way except by some form of divine revelation. And all of them, yes, over time was perverted in a little way and what have you. Like I said, when they would drink blood and what have you, because God never, as we're going to get to that, maybe some of it tonight, God never, ever, ever, ever allowed that. He always provided a substitute. And it, like I said, maybe we'll get to some of that. Anyhow, but let me get back to this. From the beginning and everywhere, blood seems to have been looked upon as preeminently the representative of life, as indeed in a peculiar sense, life itself. The transference of blood from one organism to another has been counted the transference of life with all that life includes. Again, why we're going to keep studying this is because what is this going to mean when we get to the New Testament when Jesus said the very life that Christ had, the very life that God gave Christ that he's, he's given to us, the very life of Christ has been given to us. All these verses, again, it's the words that I speak, they are spirit and their life, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you. There, when Jesus is talking to him in John 6, all these things, I mean, they just, they mean so much more. The intercommingling of blood by its intertransference has been understood as equivalent to an intercommingling of natures. Two natures thus intercommingled by the intercommingling of blood have been considered as forming thenceforward one blood, one life, one nature, one soul in two organisms. The intercommingling of natures by the intercommingling of blood has been deemed possible between man and a lower organism, between man and a higher organism, even between man and deity, actually or by symbol as well as between man and his immediate fellow. The mode of intertransference of blood with all that this carries has been deemed practicable alike by way of the lips and by way of the opened and interflowing veins. And again, you'll read where they would make an incision in the vein. They'd put a quill in a vein. They'd suck the blood up and put it in a little leaf or an amulet or literally suck it up and put it in some kind of a concoction. They'd drink it. But the, anyhow, every culture 
It has been represented by blood bathing, by blood anointing, by blood sprinkling, or, or again by the interdrinking of wine, which was formerly commingled with blood itself in the drinking. And the yielding of one's life by the yielding of one's blood has often been represented by the yielding of the blood of a chosen and a suitable substitute. Similarly, the blood or the nature of divinities in all tribes has been represented vicariously in divine covenanting by the blood of a devoted and an acceptable substitute. Intercommunion between the parties of a blood covenant has been a recognized privileged privilege in conjunction with any and every observance of the rite of blood covenanting. And the body of the divinely accepted offering, the blood of which is a means of divine human interunion, has been counted a very part of the divinity itself. And to partake of that body as food has been deemed equivalent to being nourished by the very divinity itself. Blood as life has been looked upon as belonging in the highest sense to the author of all life, God. The taking of life has been seen to be the prerogative of its author only, and only he who is duly empowered for a season and for a reason by that author, for blood taking in any case has been supposed to have the right to the temporary exercise of that prerogative. Again, I know it's a lot of language, a lot of words here, but just let me get it out in your atmosphere anyhow. Even then, the blood as the life must be employed under the immediate direction and oversight of its author. The heart of any living organism as the blood source and the blood fountain has been recognized as the representative of its owner's highest personality and as the diffuser of the issues of his life and nature. A covenant of blood, now, now this is, now these next two paragraphs, but listen to this. A covenant of blood, a covenant made by the intercommunion of blood has been recognized in all cultures as the closest, the holiest, the most indissoluble compact conceivable. Such a covenant clearly involves an absolute surrender of one's separate self and an irrevocable merging of one's individual nature into the dual or the multiplied personality included in the compact. Man's highest and noblest outreachings of soul have therefore been for such a union with the divine nature as is typified in this human covenant of blood. Now, like I said, I want you to keep thinking about like this kind of a statement here. I want, I, I, this is what I, when I read this book, the first time I read it several years ago, I couldn't get away from those statements. Those are where the Lord kept having me stop. A covenant of blood is recognized as the holiest, the closest, the most indissoluble compact conceivable. Such a covenant clearly involves an absolute, absolute surrender of one's separate self and an irrevocable merging of one's individual nature into a new dual nature, included in the compact. Now why, like I said, you've got to keep thinking in the back of your mind as we're reading this, what hopefully we'll get to in the New Testament, like I said before this course is over, is the fact that God has entered into covenant. It was God's choice, we're gonna read in Genesis 15, with Abram, he said, I am going to make a covenant with you between me and you. 
And we're going to see that it's the answer to everything because God said that to Abram. I'm getting way ahead of myself. God said to Abram, Abram was frustrated after going out and retrieving all of his, his family and tribes after they'd been attacked and taken away. And he went and brought them back. And then he got more or less depressed because he told Melchizedek and told, or rather these kings, he said, I'll not take anything from you, he said, whatsoever, because I'll let no man say that he hath made me rich, for I have lifted my hand to the Lord, and I've sworn. And again, a covenant thing, because in hands were where the cuts were, and that's where the covenant signs were. I've lifted my hand to the Lord and sworn. And then God speaks to him in the first part of the next few chapters, and he says this to him. He said, Abraham, seeing that thou hast sworn unto me and that you wouldn't take anything from any other man, he basically goes on to say, you're going to be the wealthiest man this world has ever seen. Abraham was the wealthiest man in all the Bible. <laughs> I'm going to bless everything that you do and what have you. And then Abraham answers this. He said, but Lord, what's the difference? Why? Why? What? What difference does it make if I'm going to be blessed in all these areas since I have no son? I have no son to carry on my name, and this servant of mine, Eleazar, is going to reign in my stead. And God said, no, one of your own womb, one of your own blood is going to reign. And, the Lord, and then Abram said to, to God, how shall this be? How is the promise that you've just given me going to come to pass? Now, this is key. Abraham says, how are your promises? How do I know that this will happen? The way God answers is this, Abram, go get a cow, go get some doves, and go get a goat. I'm going to cut a covenant with you. In other words, God's answer to Abram's question, Abram's question was, how do I know your promises will come to pass? God's answer is, because I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. Now again, we just read it, but the mindset of all cultures when that was written it speaks volumes. It's this huge statement that of the holiest, like it says, the thing, the holiest thing that can ever happen. Like I said, you read about Stanley's hunt for or Livingston, Stanley's hunt for Livingston all across Africa, like we said, as some of the things we read last week. Every one of these searches, all these tribes, what happened when people enter into covenant, people that were literally destroying each other within 30 seconds or uh, of having cut covenant are best friends forever, forever. You know, and even to seven generations later, even if you make cut covenant with somebody's uncle, <laughs> makes no difference. If they knew about it, you were like a brother. For, I mean, you were more than a brother. You, they, there was a commitment in the understanding of these tribes, in the Malays, like I said, in Nepal, in, in, in China, in the American Indians, anywhere, if there was the sign of a covenant that had been made with my people anywhere from you and your people, I mean, there was just such an absolute surrender of anything and everything I have. Because, you see, our whole nature, our worth comes I mean, the worth of our tribe, the worth of everything we stand for is, is tied up in this whole understanding of what it means to keep our word and to keep covenant. And for us to break covenant destroys the worth of our tribe, destroys the worth of our very existence because our meaning, I mean, again, see, today, like I said, our words don't mean very much. But what I'm trying to say is those words meant a lot back then. They meant a lot back then, and God help us make them make a lot, be worth a lot today. 
But what we're saying is God's never changed. And if we'll begin to get some revelation of what a covenant's all about, then when we see scriptures where it says God swore by himself, seeing he can swear by no greater, I mean, and how God has, he has devoted himself to us. What I mean is when you begin to see, if you'll just stick with this stuff, because there's no way I can do it in eight hours, but if you'll stick with this stuff and begin to study it and really study it and make it something that you search, as you go along, like I said, it suddenly just slams you in the face. It's unthinkable for God not to show up. When I, crawl, when I cry out unto him. It's unthinkable for God not to show up in my life. I mean, it's, I don't have to beg him to do this. He's in, we're in covenant. I'm in covenant with Almighty God. It has nothing to do with my righteousness. I, it's my brother, my Jesus. I'm in him, in him. And that's what we're going to see what it means because all of us are witnesses to the covenant every time we take communion. I mean, it's incredible. And that's like I said, I'm way ahead of myself there, but it's okay. I'm going to repeat the same thing several times because it's important. This is why, like I said, God helped the church of the Lord Jesus Christ understand what they do when they take communion because of that verse that says, don't partake of this unworthily. Remember, and the word means not esteeming the value of what you're doing because then the next verse just says flat out categorically, partaking of the covenant table unworthily. It says, this is the reason that many among you are weak and sickly and they die premature. It just flat says this is the reason. Because they partake of this stuff, they drink that juice, throw back that cracker, it's some religious thing they do. They've got no more idea than a hog, the depth and the breadth and the length of what they're really doing. They just do it as religion, it's religion. They don't understand that every time they do that, they're representing the whole covenant table of the display of Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb sacrificed for us, our covenant sacrifice that brought us into oneness to the Lord. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. How it came to pass that men everywhere were so generally agreed on the main symbols of their religious yearnings and their religious hopes in this realm of their aspirations is a question which obviously admits of two possible answers. A common revelation from God may have been given to primitive man and all these varying yet related indications of religious strivings and aim may be but the perverted, the, may be but the perverted remains of those first revelations that had since become misused or slighted. In other words, he's saying, because everything has so much similarity, this is what I've, I'm repeating myself from earlier, it seems to be that God has placed this in the core of all man even before they were ever able to co-relate to each other across gulfs of oceans or what have you. But along the way, you know, in the world, along the way, the holy parts of these things got perverted down into where they were perverted. The rites were got, got into places where they didn't. Um, on the other hand, it says God may have originally implanted the germs of a common religious thought in the mind of man and then have adapted his successive revelations to the outworking of these germs. On this point, Kurtz has said forcibly, quote, a comparison of the religious symbols of the Old Testament with those of ancient heathendom shows that the ground and the starting point of those forms of religion which found their appropriate expressions and symbols was the same in all cases, while the history of civilization proves that on this point, priority cannot be claimed by the Israelites. In other words, this stuff was in motion before, again, God, before we read about what happened with God and Abraham, this was in, this is why, again, like I said, when God cut this with Abraham, everybody knew. 
Abraham knew what this was talking about because this was something that was already in the heart of people that lived in that time, okay? Um, let me just read this one final bit, then we'll actually get here. Every error that Kurtz says, Kurtz is one of the theologians that Trumbull worked with, every error, in other words, all the errors that were made and how these people then cut different covenants in different weird ways, every error, however dangerous, is based on some truth misunderstood. And every aberration, however grievous, has started from a desire after real good, which had not attained its goal, because the latter was sought neither in the right way nor by the right means. Proof of the existence of this right of blood covenanting have been found among primitive peoples of all quarters of the globe, and its antiquity is carried back to a date long prior to the days of Abraham. All this outside of any indications of the right in the text of the Bible itself. Are we not then in a position to turn intelligently to that text, the Bible, for fuller light on the subject? And then that's when that lecture closes and he goes to the actual what happens in the Bible. <sighs> Hallelujah. Actually, I'm going to read one more page of something here, and then we'll just get to the outline on the bottom, because I want to just walk through how a covenant was cut because of what, well, you'll see it. You'll, you'll begin to see something. Let me just read this. I've got about another paragraph to read, if you, if you allow me. It is a peculiarity of the primitive compact of blood covenant friendship that he who would enter into it must be ready to make a complete surrender of himself in loving trust to him with whom he covenants. He must, in fact, so love and trust as to be willing to merge his separate individuality in the dual personality of which he becomes an integral part. Only he who believes in another unreservedly and fearlessly can take such a step intelligently. Hallelujah. Okay, now last week, like I spoke here, we're just going to look down here. I'm going to read point four at the bottom of page one. I mean, point four, point A underneath that. And like we've just read, but I want to say it again. Covenants demanded absolute, absolute, unwavering loyalty. And as we read this thing, keep thinking that whether we're loyal and faithful or not, how dare us think God isn't. Therefore, the effect of the making of the covenant had to be strong enough to affect your whole being, spirit, soul, and body for at least eight generations. There was going to be a lasting remembrance. Like I said, we're going to look at a lot of words over the next few weeks. Point B, things are going to be done in your spirit, your soul, and your body. There's going to be some pain. And as I said last week, you remember where scars come from. Cuts were made to affect remembrance. Like I said, I've got scars on my body. If you have scars on your body, you can more than likely look at that scar and remember almost... Immediate, you can remember exactly when it happened. Like I said, whether it was, well, you can just remember. You can remember. You can look at a scar and you can remember that scar immediately. I put down point three, point C again. This is what will stop divorces in the body of Christ because marriage isn't based, based on paper and ink, but on blood. And again, as I referred to last time, um, this, there's like two chapters on where rings and bracelets and necklaces come from. The whole issue, every single thing, every, every single time. Uh, a bracelet, a, tie, a belt, everything around the Indians, it was a belt. It had within it the blood. It had within it parts and beads of different parts of different tribes and North American Indians. But again, like the ring originally that we put here because they used to think again that there was a nerve that came down the third finger. I mean, as back as far as 23 generations, 23 centuries ago, 
uh, people believed that there was a nerve coming from this finger that was closest to the heart, that there was something special about this finger. But again, the ring, it spoke like, you know, it did. It spoke of this continual, this consistent devotion and so on. But like I said, where the ring came from is before they even had rings, rings, they would make, they would take a sharp piece of flint and normally it would be in the thumb or this finger, but normally in the thumb in marriage and they would cut and just gouge and gouge and gouge until it was just bleeding profusely your thumb and then they would grind salt or dirt or gunpowder in it and just work it and work it and work until there was a huge welt on the thumb like I said and until when that thing cured or when it, in other words when it healed you would have this large welt that you wore this ring around your thumb then everywhere you went you see if you raised your hand they knew you were in covenant with a woman somewhere <laughs> and like I said about that last week, and again, this is why I want you to hear it, you don't take one of those rings off very easily. Because the issue of covenant was once in, never out. Once in, never out. Again, I don't care what we've done. I want you to begin to think from God's side. God's in this. I said God's in this. Amen. God's in this thing. And, and we're going to find again, like I said, why some of the hard things happen. Because for God to keep covenant... When his people broke covenant, he had to go and do what he said would happen. He had to allow to happen things that were part of the curses of covenants because wherever there was a covenant, there was all great giant lists of blessings for joining this tribe and great giant lists of what would happen if you broke this covenant ever, like I said, much less what's in the Bible. Point D, covenants were based on differences, not on similarities. Now, this is where we stopped last week. This is something that's so vital. How many of you know, I'm going to give you a deep revelation right from the beginning, all right? Men and women are different. This is a deep truth. How many of you know that's possibly the truth? Men and women are different. God brought together men and women. Again, like we said, he didn't bring together men and men or women and women. He brought together men and women. The whole idea of covenant is based upon differences. God's word is full of this truth that we were to come together not based upon our similarities, but based upon our differences. And as I said last week, and I'll try to get past it and not bloviate, as they say, <laughs> pontificate more about it right now. Um, he said to me years ago when I first started studying this, he said, if my people would ever become comfortable with their differences but established in their similarities. He said, I would work miracles in their midst. But again, think about it today. In ministry circles, you know, like I'm in a church almost every weekend, like I said, and you see all these people that group together and they just want to be around people that know just what they know. And so you got to think just like I think or else I can't have fellowship with you. They miss the very heartbeat of everything that God did. The idea of covenants were that people came together based upon differences, not upon similarities, all through covenant understanding. Now, if you turn to the next page, I hope it's page two for you, where it says, where I've got on, where it says family number one. Now, you've got to think about this. So family number one wants to enter into family covenant with family number two. And the way I used to illustrate it was, and it's to me the best way to do it. Let's say you've got two tribes of people. You have one tribe that is a warrior tribe. They're fierce. I mean, they're strong. They're able to just, you know, get out there and take care of business when it comes to battle. But they're horrible when it comes to learning or dealing with food or agriculture, learning how to raise their own foods. Well, there's another tribe across the valley, and this tribe is, doesn't have hardly any warriors whatsoever, but these, guys, these boys have green thumbs. These guys are really good with agriculture. They're good with foods, and they know how to grow things. 
Well, you see, it just made sense to them. And again, there's, you ought to see the record of covenants that they've got in, in libraries and great libraries of where peoples would come together just based on that. You're able to grow food. You're able to protect us. And so they came together. Family number one, tribe number one, tribe number two. They decided, you know, we can help each other. So they made a decision to come into a covenant. Like I've got up here, why do it if you don't need what they have? Often opposites come together. Why God does this often? He knows about the different races of men, their strengths and their weaknesses. Now, you may not like this first statement, but the male is superior to the female in some areas. But the female is superior to the male in some areas. Like I said, you know, you'd think like, why do we have to teach this? Well, we do, evidently, because you look around, everybody's so dumb. The male is inferior to the female in areas. The female is inferior to the male in areas. Now, here I've got Ephesians. Let's, let's read Ephesians 2. Go, turn to Ephesians 2, and I'm going to start actually from verse 10. I've got down here. I've got it on the outline from verse 13. But I just want to start in Ephesians 2.10. It says here in Ephesians 2.10, now watch some of the language just as we begin to even just a little bit think about it now. For we are God's own handiwork, His workmanship recreated. Now, because remember, this is two becoming one. Everything about covenant. Let me just throw this in real quick. How many of you know in England, how many of you know people that have what they call a double-barreled last name? You know what I mean? Where do you think that comes from? Like one of my trustees, was his last name was English Jones years ago. You know what I mean? Well, very basically, you see, the English family married a somebody from the Jones family. They were no longer, when they came together, that husband and wife were no longer the English family. And the Jones family, they became the English Jones family. And it's so simple. See, we have this stuff around us today all the time. We don't know what it means. It speaks of two becoming one. So they're no longer the English family. They're no longer the Jones family. They are now the English Jones family. Like Julie's maiden name is Ken. So basically... Our name is Anderson Can, and yes, we can, glory to God. <laughs> but it's Anderson Can, or Can Anderson? Yes, Anderson Can. But the point is, two became one, you see, and this is what happens. And see, women, women in particular, this is why in marriage, and in, like I said, when I used to count, I don't counsel people much in that area anymore because people don't like my counsel because I get too serious about it. But the point is, see, when a woman gets married today, in most cases, she gives up her total identity and takes upon herself the identity of the man, doesn't she? she? Her name is set to the side in most cases, and she takes upon herself the name of the person that she marries. She's swallowed up in his life. And I mean, just if you just think, death has been swallowed up in life. We are in Christ. You see, my wife, Julie, is in me now, and she is now an Anderson. Sometimes she may not like it, but she's an Anderson. <laughs> She is in me now. She has come into unison with me to such a degree that we have become one flesh. We become one flesh, English Jones. This is what happened between tribes and peoples. And again, as we go through all this stuff, I don't want it to just be a history lesson because you're going to have to begin to ask yourself hard questions. What did God really mean then? Is, are we, are we, are we actually in a covenant with God? And if so, how strong is it? And if so, how, how devoted to us is God. Uh, is it okay for, I mean, does God just forget? Does God just, does God not back up his part? I mean, when you read again and read and read and read about how again, I mean, 
It is absolutely, in fact, I've got it written on another page here. I don't want, like I keep saying, getting ahead of myself, but it's all right. There's a, there's a statement, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't have the page right now. It says in one part of this, there is no record of a covenant of blood ever being broken once when it was entered into by all of the tribes of like, and particularly the Malays and Borneo and what have you. But I mean, these things get so crusty. I mean, it, it's just like I said, when you, the more you read the histories of these things, you see to the people of those ages, it, I, I just want you to keep hearing this, it was unthinkable. It's not even a possibility. It's inconceivable that once in a blood covenant, you would ever break it, ever. It's, I mean, like, you know, it's just like, it's not even, it's just, you can't think about it. Remember that little part I read about when Stanley was searching for Livingston that time and he, or Livingston rather, it was, uh, uh, he helped, he cut that tumor out of that woman's arm and just that little bit and he just, just excised that for and when he did it, some blood spurted out and hit him, hit him in the eye. And the woman said, from that, that, this day forward, she says, you are my friend. And every time you come to the village, you must come to my house because I must cook for you. I mean, just a little simple thing, but blood, her blood had touched him. And in her mind, instantly, blood has been between us. So everything has changed. Right now, we're in relationship for the rest of our eternity, for the rest of our life. So when you come, I'm going to serve you because we have this covenant between us. Blood has passed between us. Oh, I'm just telling you, it gets, when, you, when you really begin to understand that we're in covenant with God, I mean, it just makes you roll, sit back and roar, you know. And I don't mean the crazy roar, I mean the real stuff. Anyhow. But in Ephesians 2, it says, For we are God's own handiwork, His workmanship, recreated. We've been recreated. We're not just ourselves anymore. We're hid. Our lives are now hid in Christ. We've been recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew that we may do those good works which God predestined and planned beforehand for us, taking paths which He prepared ahead of time that we should walk in them living the good life which He prearranged and made ready for us to live. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles, heathens in the flesh. You were called uncircumcision, by those who called themselves circumcision, itself a mere mark in the flesh made by human hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated and living apart from Christ. You were excluded from all part in Him, utterly estranged, outlawed from the rights of Israel as a nation, and strangers with no share in the sacred compact of the Messianic promise with no knowledge of or right in God's agreements, His covenants. And you had no hope because of that. No promise. You had no promise. You were in the world without God. See, outside of covenant, outside of covenant, you have no promise. And you're in the world, he said, as good as without God. But now, this is where we say, thank God for those two words, but now. All of you, us, all of us that are saved, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were so far away, through, by, in the blood, in the blood of Christ, 
in the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. Something that all creation, all people thought was the holiest thing, like I said, that could ever be imaginable. In the blood of Christ now, you that are in the blood of Christ, you that are born again, you've been baptized in water. It's a type of, of well, you're going to see it in a minute. By the blood of Christ, you've been brought near. For he is himself our peace, our bond of unity and harmony. He has made us both Jew and Gentile one body. Is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible says? He has made us both one. There is no longer Jew and Gentile as far as God is concerned. What God sees is either somebody being in the covenant or not in the covenant. Full stop. For he is himself, our peace, our bond of unity and harmony. He has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one body, and has broken down, destroyed, and abolished the hostile dividing wall that was between us by abolishing in his own crucified flesh the enmity that was caused by the law with its decrees and ordinances, which he annulled. He did this, listen, that he might make, now really listen, this is all covenant talk. He did this, that he from the two, to what? The two races, Jews and everything outside of the Jewish race was Gentile. He did this so that from the two, he might create in himself one new man, one new quality of humanity out of the two, so making peace. <laughs> Romans 6, 1, Romans 5, 1 rather, therefore having peace with God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm at peace with God. God's Amen. not angry at me. I'm in a covenant with God. God is my covenant partner. God can't be against me. For him to be against me would mean he'd have to break this covenant. God is for me. God is for me. And he designed, verse 16, and he designed to reconcile. You have to ask yourself if it was successful or not, and you have to hopefully say, yeah, it was. And he designed to reconcile to God both Jew and Gentile united in a single body by means of his cross, thereby killing the mutual enmity, destroying it, you see. I don't care what enmity there was, what strife, what problem there was, the moment Christ went to that cross, to those who accept that sacrifice, all enmity is done away with in a microsecond. Poof! All your sin, all of what you deserved is gone in a moment by virtue of the fact that you believe and you are now part of this covenant that God's made with us through his son, Jesus Christ. He designed to reconcile to God both Jew and Gentile united in a single body by means of his cross, thereby killing the mutual enmity and bringing the feud to an end. Hallelujah. You see, as far as God's concerned, it's been brought to an end. It's already been brought to an end. I said it's already been brought to an end. 
There is no more Jew and Gentile. I don't guess, well, like I said, I get frustrated. I got friends that are Messianic Jews and everything, but everything, but everything, but everything, but everything, but everything, but everything has to be spoken from a Messianic vantage point or else you're not in Christ. You're not just doing it right. Then I've got, then there's guys on the other side, like I said, that are replacement theologists, you know, and everything is us, us, us now, and God's, the Jews are out of favor, and it just drives me nuts because they're all, in bo they're both dumb. I love them all. Don't misunderstand me, but I just don't know why they can't read Ephesians. In Christ, it's not a matter of being a Jew. It's not a matter of being a Gentile. It's a matter of being in Christ. We're one new quality of humanity. One new quality. He took two and made one. Listen, listen. That's the heart of what covenant's all about. You take two and make one. God's the only one that can take two and make one. We take one plus one, plus one and make two. He takes two and makes one out of it. Very important. Now, we've got to stop here before we really launch into this next bit of showing how he did it. Father, we thank you again for it. Just help us with this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.